Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The rights of the Jewish people and the Palestinian people, along with the policies of the Israeli government under Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, are a source of great conflict. This conflict not only presents points of debate in the tiny country of Israel, but has become a debate in many other parts of the world. Yael Berta is a young Israeli lawyer born in New York City and raised in Jerusalem. At the age of 14, she became involved in a struggle to free her parents from debtor's prison, which changed her life and has led her to be a leader of a nonviolent movement for reconciliation and understanding among the Israeli and Palestinian people. I met with Yael Berta in the studios of Radio Curious and asked her to begin our conversation by telling us about what was going on in her family's life when she moved to Israel and what led her to go to law school and do the work that she does. Actually, it's, it's very, very deeply connected. What happened was my family had moved to Israel and my parents had this um, kind of idyllic view on what Israeli society was like. They found themselves not very careful in business, and they went bankrupt. In Israel? In Israel. It was a very quick deterioration. When I was about 14 years old, they were both sent to jail for debt, and there was still debtor's prison. It, this was 1991, Gulf War. Tourism had dropped. That's why my father had kind of lost his business. They had been sent to, to debtor's prison, and I went to try and free them at the the police station, they told me that the people that decide if it was to free them were the lawyers of the people that they owed money to. And then I said, wait a minute, but there's not a judge? And they said, well, it's not really his decision. It's up to the lawyers. So I found myself up against these lawyers. They didn't have any room to listen to anyone, especially not a 14-year-old girl that was um, asking for her parents to be released. After about two days, I convinced this judge to let um, my parents out. How were you able to get before the judge? Oh, I just shoved my way in, which was going to be uh, what I would do time and time again afterwards for other people. After you became a lawyer, even even when I was just uh, acting as an as a you know as an organizer or as an activist, what I had learned was is that if you sit and wait until you're going to be given the chance to speak, you will not be given the chance to speak because nobody's interested in what you have to say. It took me a while afterwards to unlearn that, to realize that people actually were listening to, to what I have to say and to kind of relax that a bit. That was my introduction into the political world. What I did was I went to see if this was personal because I didn't think it was personal. How could it be personal? Like we had done nothing wrong to deserve this. And then I realized that not only was it not personal, but it was a social structure that was allowing for people and especially lawyers and big companies, to hurt, you know, the small person on the street. And that, I, I kind of got interested in, in, in uh, social structures and in communities. Then I began to be active on a lot of uh, social and cultural issues. And naturally in Israel, there that's always linked to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You can't talk about anything without relating to this whole conflict that is what shapes our lives out there. A dual economy and dual identity of the Palestinians and the Israelis? 
that too, but also the fact that we are living in the constant security threat hovering over the heads of everyone, which doesn't really permit a discussion about education and social values and culture to take the lead because there's constantly something happening on the security front, which is always more important. And that kind of leaves the scene to a lot of generals and military people because they know more about it. What is happening on the security front is a manifestation of the cultural division. I think sometimes that's true. I think there's a lot of cultural clash there. A lot of um, things that have happened because of misunderstanding, cultural misunderstanding and arrogance on the part of Western thought and European thought versus Middle Eastern values. It's funny because there are many values that are shared by Mizrahi Jews, Middle Eastern Jews, and Palestinians. Family values, the importance of tradition, the importance of religion, the importance of community versus individualist values or more Western or to some extent capitalist values. One of the things about the different cultures, especially Middle Eastern cultures, they're not consumerist in, in any form. You buy whatever you need to survive, but that's it. That's not what you're dealing with. That's not your main goal. And I think that that's very different than what Western culture has become. Of course, it, it didn't used to be, but now it, it is all about commodity. And I think that that's a very different kind of outlook. Going back to your experience trying to free your parents, I presume at some point you were successful. Oh, yeah. It, it took a few days. It was like 48 hours or 60 hours or whatever. But those 60 hours, I think, were formative enough to kind of make me understand that there were people that were being trampled on and there was absolutely nobody that had a voice for them. They were voiceless. It's then that I understood that you either were for or against in a way that it's either you worked for the bettering of, of society or you were a part of the oppressor. And that was the way I saw things. And the whole idea about being silent is not an option. The whole idea of always having to have an opinion, always participating in the discussion, because the minute you don't participate, you're just joining hands with the forces that are cracking down on those who are weak. And so that's, that's how I got into it. Yet I've heard you say there are not very many people who are willing to speak up and willing to uh, be actively in favor of a pacifying situation in Israel where it's safe for Jews and non-Jews to live together in a non-violent circumstance. Some of the reasons that I've heard you give is that to make that change, many of the people would have to give up their creature comforts. What's going to happen? I think that what's happening in Israel is a very interesting phenomena. There are many people that are very, very aware of the suffering caused by the conflict that is being caused by the Israelis to the Palestinians. They're also very environmentally aware. They're environmentally conscious, and they have a deep understanding, literally in their bodies, of the imminent threat that there is not coming f from a security threat, but from the disintegration of the country. But with all this, people find it very difficult to step out of their lives. So it's about their jobs. And when they start speaking out, they risk losing their jobs, especially speaking up against the occupation, especially saying anything that is about refusing or conscientious objection. I mean, it's not at all an environment where you can't speak your mind, but people are very, very uncomfortable about kind of directly questioning. Why? 
you're not. Why are you different standing out as you do and you say other people are uncomfortable? I think, first of all, I belong to a community of activists in Israel that do speak out. And we're not many, but we are a very strong community. Also, there's been a legacy of people that have spoken out in Israel and Palestine. There has been a legacy of people that have denied the occupation and that have fought for social justice. When you think about it, it's really funny because Israel was founded on speaking out, on wanting a different world, on wanting a different life. And there's no question in my mind the founding fathers and mothers of the country that started up the first kibbutz in 1904, they would absolutely be shocked to see that their descendants were not fighting back more. This, this government whose policies are very, very close to some regimes that we don't really want to get close to. Like what? There are policies of the Sharon government that I don't like to use the word fascist because I think that sometimes using those words opens up even more the possibility for it to happen. Words like Nazi and fascist and whatever, I think that that's, that can be very harmful. What's happening is recently the Sharon government has disallowed any form of dissent. And how is it doing that? Also from the right wing. Well, the form of dissent in the Israeli parliament, in the Knesset, or on the air in, in forms of uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech... No, what, what I is mean, being suppressed? what I mean is, the right wingers, and this is these are my political opponents, but people that are from the settlements and are against the disengagement plans, and the disengagement plan means the the, the plan to leave Gaza, and leave part of the the settlements. What happened is, Justice Minister Tommy Lapid told the government workers that if they would sign a petition against the disengagement plan against the government policy, they would be fired. Again and again, the Secret Service will come out saying that the right-wingers are planning, there's people on the right wing that are planning to kill the, the prime minister, and people on the right wing that are planning to blow up the Temple Mount, and all kinds of stuff, which I'm sure there's a very, very small amount that there's a pro- you know probability that that's what they're doing. But just creating that demonization of dissent... When you say the right wing, you mean the Jewish right wing? Yes, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the Jewish right wing in the settlements. Well, what is it that they are seeking to preserve when they would want to blow up the Temple Mount? That's the most extreme point of view that's possible. But all I'm saying is that while these right wingers, which I oppose entirely, these people believe that the Messiah will come and the land will be, and the, the, the Jewish people will be saved because they are holding on to these outposts that are in Palestinian territory beyond the 67 border. And of course, they argue that it's a lot of security issues and this and that, but the basic premise of it is a religious one, saying, this is greater Israel, this is the land of our forefathers, we have holy places here, therefore we need to stay here. There was a whole people that lived here on these lands. But that's true under most situations where a government expands its territory. There were people who were there before. Yeah, there's no question about that. The question is, what do we do about it? I'm not one of those people that like to talk about what could have been if 
what yeah. would have been if the land wasn't conquered. So posing but the it was. question, what do we do about it? How do you answer that question? And before you give us your answer, I'd like to say that our guest is Yael Berda, a 28-year-old human rights lawyer who lives in Jerusalem, Israel, who's visiting the studios of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Yael, what do we do about it? I mean, what do we do about a situation where people will strap bombs to themselves, blow themselves up, and anybody nearby? I've heard that characterized as the worst form of child abuse, training people to do that. I think the suicide bombings are a symptom of the great, great desperation and dehumanization that has taken place over this, over the years of this conflict. And I think that the only way to dissolve that hatred is by finding a solution that is not just an historical solution or a security solution, but is one that is going to address the deep, deep cuts and hurts of, you know, that have, have been caused to Palestinian culture and Palestinian life. And that's something that I think a lot of times people don't even realize what that means. Like when you have these children that have grown up in these villages where they have never seen a Jew except a soldier or a settler. I'll go in with, with a couple of, of activists and I'll come with the activists for a legal issue or whatever. And children there will be shocked. And then the parents will say, you see, I told you there were different people. And you'll see the parents saying, the, you know, parents saying to their children. The Palestinian parents. Saying to their children, do you see? Not all Jews are soldiers. Not all the Israelis are settlers. There's other people. And that's usually such a difficult situation to be in because then you realize that these are parents that are trying to teach their children nonviolence in a very, very violent surrounding. And when you live in a refugee camp that is being bombarded and all you know about is these posters of these martyrs all over the place and soldiers, this is all you know from the conflict. And then there's just survival and there's a lot of other things like how are you going to go to school? Will you ever go to school? There's a lot of issues there about hope, about desperation, about self-determination, not only on a national level, but also on a personal level. Like who are you when you're born in a refugee camp? Like, what are you allowed to dream about? What are you supposed to dream about? Well, like the rest of us anywhere, what we can dream about uh, is limited to the words that we know. And that allows us to put our thoughts into a a context that we can uh, imagine. It's hard to imagine things that we don't know about. And when you're limited on what you're being told, how do you answer that question? What do you see as the future of Israel in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Well, the first thing I think is that the most important thing that we do is stop the violence right now. But how do you do that? To give a period of quiet. The only way you do that is by loosening the reins and kind of taking out the fear, the constant fear and panic factor. And taking out the constant fear and panic factor will be done by both, uh, on both sides. It would be done by, first of all, the, the Israeli government to loosen the tight, tight reins. It literally has a noose around the necks of the Palestinians right now. And the terrorist organizations to stop the bombings. Do you see a change after the death of Yasser Arafat? I think it, it, it does provide us an opportunity. I doubt that this government will be not only wise enough, but... Um, but will extend a hand to 
any sort of change that would be possible. There are other people and other voices that can come instead of Arafat and his whole parade of people there that are much more in tune to the people and to the grassroots um, level. The question is, will this be an opportunity or will it just pass again into violence and anarchy? I mean, anarchy in a bad way. And it'll give just more reason for heavier measures and a heavier hand on the Palestinian population. I think that there is a window of, of opportunity here. I really wish that there would be a government that, you know, I would trust to do that, to extend the hand and say, hey, you know, we don't want to decapitate any more Palestinian leadership. We want to see how you can build your society and we can talk. Yael, you're an activist, you're a participant lawyer, uh, you're a motivator of ideas, yet you talk about what's going on in Israel as if you're one or two steps removed. You're describing it as an observer as well as a participant activist. How did you get to this point? Um, first of all, I think that it's the only way where we can see clearly. Well, do you do this alone? Do you work with a group? No, I work I work with many different groups. I don't work specifically with an organization, but I work with many different groups. Uh, most are groups that are doing direct action or engaged in some form of nonviolent grassroots work. And I think that that type of work always requires you to observe your thoughts and, and how you're talking about something because um, the only way to get people mobilized to organize them is to really listen to what they have to say. What are those groups? The groups are Ta'ayush. Ta'ayush means uh, together in Arabic, and it's um, Jews and Jewish and Palestinian Israelis that are working together against the occupation. There's a group called Anarchists Against the Wall, which is a young group that are doing amazing community organizing work. There's a uh, Mahapach, the movement that I founded and is a community organizing uh, movement that works in uh, different villages and neighborhoods uh, all over the country. If someone wanted to contact these groups, how would they do that? Usually by website. Can you tell us the websites? Just Ta'ayush, www.taayush.org.il. Um, another thing is you can Google Anarchist Against the Wall. You can Google Mahapach. Uh, there's Green Action that do uh, environmental justice work also in the territories. There's Musawa that is uh, the Center for Palestinian-Israeli Rights. They do a lot of community organizing work. Here in the U.S., very little is heard about the, the work of this huge mobilization going on constantly. And it's less seen on the streets. It's not a protest mobilization. But there's a lot of work going on for the healing and for the protest of the, the conflict. On the other side of that, there's APAC, the American-Israeli Political Action Committee. And one of the things that they say is that but for the United States' support, Israel would have been overtaken by the neighboring countries. You dispute that. Why? First of all, I have very little trust in APAC's goals and their support. Well, how do you characterize their goals and support? I think that APAC doesn't represent the Jewish community. It doesn't represent the Israelis, that's for sure. Because what the Israeli public needs now, more than ever, is social and economic legislation, monies, and work. 
Israel right now does not need 500 smart bombs that it just got money from the U.S. to buy. I know of three daycare centers that are being shut down. It costs the price of one smart bomb to probably keep all three open for at least a year or two. Oh, I think of what APAC are doing, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are very ideologically involved and that are very committed, and I respect their commitment. But there are other people that are making a very good buck off of this conflict. And these are the people that run campaigns. Well, after they run campaigns and, and lobbies in APAC, so then they go work for different companies and other You're lobbies. You're talking about running campaigns uh, for members of the United States government. Yeah, from, and, and, and you can see it. I mean, I, I think that um, many people from APAC have gone then to work for different senators and congressmen and were paid very, very handsomely for their work. Um, and for their connections with the Jewish community. Connections with the Jewish community are uh, very well paid for. I think that there's a lot of uh, consultancy going on and a lot of um, preservation of power. How about talking about how we, we can help solve the conflict? Not just talk about defense, but talk about preemptive waging of peace and preemptive, preemptive striking of educational values. Well, from, from that perspective, let me ask you about nonviolence. Where do you personally draw the line in terms of nonviolence if it's clear that someone is going to physically attack and perhaps kill you and your uh, colleagues? When do you bring in the, the level of self-defense that might require killing them? To me, I think the only way of, of thinking about nonviolence is to actually live that. And that also means that it's what we say and how we live and what we eat and what we do in our daily life. And you know, those are the more important questions of nonviolence because we're less frequented with the daily question of, you know, is somebody going to blow your, themselves up on your bus? Now, um, when it comes to, for instance, different methods of torture and interrogation that are being used by the Israeli Secret Service, um, which the High Court of Justice, um, Bagatz, um, said that these methods could no longer be used unless in extreme cases. This was a ruling that, you know, there was a big fight over it. What's extreme? Extreme is like when there's a ticking bomb, when it's absolutely imminent, totally obvious that this person knows about something that's going to blow up in the next 10 minutes. That, it's that narrow. That's a difficult decision as it is, those of us that were working for the prevention of torture said, in no case can we use these methods. In no way can we let the state use torture to take information. What's happening is that even after the, high, the ruling of the High Court of Justice, now the Secret Service has just taken on to do bureaucratic interrogations using methods that are not allowed legally. Like what? I've seen these sheets where an interrogator will write, at 6.20, the one who was being interrogated was slapped five times in the face. But he's reporting about it. And so you have this whole bureaucratic system of interrogation and of, of the use of torture and methods that are inhumane. And this is part of the bureaucracy. Talking about nonviolence, I think sometimes about the people that conduct these interrogations and the young boys that are standing at the checkpoints and the people that are 18 and 20, they're being forced to carry out orders that are terrible. 
that are against human rights and they know this and the deep deep hurt that these people have and i think this is something that people do not talk about they do not know how hard how traumatic the army is for the israeli soldiers that are going in when they're 18 years old and coming out traumatized people don't know that many many young israelis go after their army service to india and you know smoke up a whole forest full of marijuana there's a lot of trying to run away from this deep suffering that is caused by this violence and the point is that if you harm and if you cause suffering to other people you will suffer yourself the society in israel is suffering deeply from the occupation Yael, how do you deal with this on a personal level? What is your personal practice of Judaism? I kind of find myself taking a little bit from a few worlds. I have been uh, doing a lot of reading on Gandhi and Martin Luther King. and That's been very helpful. I, like I said, I have a community of people that are also spiritually engaged and also active politically. And kind of combining those two and understanding that we're part of a larger picture, of a larger web of life. And this is not about winning or losing a certain campaign or winning or losing a certain case, but it's about working to literally save save this planet and save our country. And it's kind of, a, I think it's the deepest form of patriotism that comes. It comes from realizing that we've been given something so precious and we have to guard that. That's a very helpful kind of thought because when all odds are against us, it's very difficult to continue and just not say, well, hell with this. I'll just go on a hike. It's helpful to me to be very, very deeply connected. You know, I'm from Jerusalem. I'm really connected to Jerusalem, especially, you know, to West Jerusalem where I grew up and to East Jerusalem, the old city, which I love. My mother used to work there as an artist. We have a lot of friends there. And I feel very connected to a lot of things that happened in Jewish history and in Israeli history and Palestinian history. I feel very, very close to the Middle East. That's a helpful factor than feeling alienated or feeling, um, you know, unconnected. Yael Berda, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, I just read um, a beautiful book called Fields of Protest, and it's about the women's movement in India. And it was written by uh, a magnificent woman named Raka Ray, who teaches at, um, at uh, Sociology at Berkeley. And I loved her book. And so I think that uh, it's, it's very inspiring to think of women's movements in India and how they're mobiliz- mobilizing millions and millions of women to rise up and take, you know, take their rights back and reclaim their identities. Yael Berda, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Yael Berda is an Israeli human rights lawyer who lives in Jerusalem, Israel. The book she recommends is The Fields of Protest by Roka Ray. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.